The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let me bring in uh, Vince Signorella. He's a global macro uh, strategist for Bloomberg News to talk about I guess central banks. It's all about central banks today, Vince. And the first question I have is something that Cameron Kreis mentioned in his Macroman column. Um, the idea is that there is an overt leak that the Fed purposely told the Wall Street Journal, we're going to raise 75 basis points. And I've heard this from many market participants, some of whom claim to have actual knowledge about it. Is that possible? Do you believe it? Uh, no, <laughs> to be perfectly <laughs> honest with you, no. Um, I don't think I don't think the Fed is of the mind to single out any one specific news source um, to suggest that, that they were going to leak something. Is, is it possible that they could raise 75 basis points today? Absolutely. Um, but I would argue that they would be making a big mistake. The Fed really needs to explain or remind markets uh, of a couple of things. Um, that, first of all, it takes six months for monetary policy, that's the theory, to wind its way through the economy. We just started hiking rates in March. But not to inflation so, expectations. I mean, expectations they could affect right away. Yeah, they can, but look at the data so far. Retail sales are dropping. Uh, home prices are dropping. Compass and Redfin firing countless employees yesterday because the real estate market is cooling and they have no sales to support it. You know, this is actually, if you go back to 2012, and you see, look at CPI and you look at the Fed funds rate, you'll see countless gyrations in the Fed funds rate beginning at the end of 2015, hiking only to crater those rates all the way back down to zero where they were in 2015 when CPI collapsed. And the three-month moving average of CPI across that time is, is pretty close to unchanged. It's, it's a little higher now, but it's higher now for supply chain reasons, for oil reasons, and for fiscal policy, with, uh, overly stimulating the economy during the pandemic. Absolutely none of those things had to do with monetary policy. So acute changes in monetary policy are going to make matters worse, not that. Vince, so I'm going to call you out of consensus. H how typical yeah. in your career are you out of consensus? Uh, about 99% of the time, and I've been <laughs> trading 30 years in a row. So there you go. I've never <laughs> lost money. Absolutely never. I've never lost money in any given year. Wow. All right. So, but you're not right, so, betting, we're not betting on this, though, right? I mean, no. I'm just no. looking at. Look, I'm. I just um, look at this chart. If you want to access it yourself and have a Bloomberg terminal, you can type G hashtag BTV 
962. I remember that because uh, it's a famous Porsche, Le Mans Porsche. But um, it's University of Michigan inflation expectations five to 10 years out. And they jump up like the hockey stick in Al Gore's climate change movie, right? <laughs> I mean, we're, uh, we're expecting now, um, or at least the University of Michigan uh, people who are surveyed by um, the Wolverines are looking at 3.3% inflation five to 10 years out. That's what the Fed needs to break. Well, where, why? Why won't the economy do it for them? Why won't the drop in prices do it for them? Why won't the lack of wage growth cool demand as for them, which is what it always does? All right, so is is a, are we in a stagflationary environment right now, Vince, or we're, it, we're, we potentially will be, yeah. We, we're, we're heading towards it. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the chart you just said of inflationary expectations. I go back to December of 2015 when interest rates were zero. And at the end of 2018, the Fed funds rate was two and a quarter to 2.5%. And on that chart you're just telling me about, which I looked up, uh, the end of 2015 to the end of 2018, 10-year inflationary, five to 10-year inflationary expectations were dropping while the Fed was acting. Explain that to me. Because they don't surprise anybody, because they forecast everything, because they use forward guidance to tell us, listen, next month we're gonna start raising rates and it'll be 25 basis points or it'll be 50. Like, what if they just came out and shocked the market? The concern is they would break something, but maybe with 8.6% headline CPI, something needs to get broke. Well, I mean, with, uh, but it's 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 starting to slowly roll over. I mean, it, it, it you know as well as I do, spending in general is dropping because people want the wage growth to go along with the price increases. We saw that in today's retail sales numbers. That's not going to go away because the Fed raises rates. The Fed has not, the Fed has absolutely no control of this economy. It's supply side. What are they going to do? They're going to try to raise rates to further curb demand. It's already happened in the housing market. What more? What more do they need to do? Raising rates is not going to is not going to lower the price of the steak, or, or or dinner at a restaurant, or or anything else. It may lower the price of housing, but that's that's just about it. It's not going to put more money in people's pockets so they can pay for something. You know, the Fed has been horrible at forecasting both inflation and economic growth since Greenspan. I mean, a year and a half ago, they would say this inflation was transitory. Now they're saying it's permanent. Why, why, am I, why am I so confident in what they're doing? <laughs> good point. That's a good point. All right, Vince, uh, that's why we have you on, because we need the non-consensus call uh, from time to time, and Vince uh, usually brings that game. Vince Signorella, global macro strategist uh, at Bloomberg News. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com. Bring in next guest, Jennifer Lee. She's a senior economist and managing director at BMO Capital Markets. Uh, Jennifer, obviously, uh, 
We were focusing on the ECB earlier this morning on their surprise announcement, kind of a nothing burger, I guess, as some people are saying. Now all eyes turn to this Federal Reserve, and I, I would think the consensus feels like 75 basis points, although we just had Vince Signorella, macro strategist for Bloomberg News, saying, you know, they don't really have to do that. 50 would be okay. What are you expecting this afternoon? It depends on who you're asking in our group about what we're right. expecting, but I think I think right now um, 75 basis points is probably the most likely outcome, just given that it's almost like they've backed themselves into a corner. Having that story come out, I don't know whether or not it's a leak or not, a purposeful leak, but it's almost like if they don't do 75 basis points, it's, it, it won't go over well with the markets. Um, so it probably 75 basis points and maybe a lot more hawkish language. By the way, you're not alone out there. I've noticed... <laughs> Uh, sometimes a chief strategist like Marco Kalanovich doesn't agree with his chief economist or his CEO. <laughs> so um, it seems like well, they're I'm talking about people within our group, by the way. Uh, <laughs> within within the your economic group. Oh, uh, well, uh, <laughs> the, the problem is um, obviously inflation, and the Fed needs to deal with that. Whether it goes 50 now or 75 now and then 75 next week or 50 next week, probably probably isn't that important, right? Are they going to be able to get prices down? Can they really do anything about it? Vince was saying, you know what, this isn't something that monetary policy can necessarily solve. So monetary policy being a, the classic blunt instrument, I mean, there's the supply side, um, of course, all the supply factors, energy prices as well from the war. That has been a big contributor to, uh, to inflation. But at the same time, on the demand side, all the money that people saved during the pandemic, broadly speaking, of course, all the fiscal support, that has caused a huge um, increase in demand, all that pent-up demand. So what the Fed was trying to do and what most central bankers are trying to do is basically clobber, if I can say that, clobber the demand side uh, with higher rates, and that will at least go some way to bring um, inflation lower. Maybe not quickly, as quickly as we had expected, but it will go some way towards doing that. So uh, also today, Jennifer, we had some economic data come out this morning. Um, retail sales a little bit weaker than expected. Any read-through there for you? It wasn't as, I mean, I, I don't think we should, even though consensus, including us, has had a, had a, had a small increase uh, expected yeah. for May, I don't think some of the details were too, too shocking. Um, a lot of it was cars, I think down 3.5% or something like that. Gasoline, uh, uh, gasoline sales were up a lot. But even ex-autos and ex-gas, you know, still up mildly. Some of the discretionary stuff was interesting, like sporting goods, I think, were still higher, and people were still dining out. So it wasn't all negative, but of course this is just the start, and I think we're going to start seeing uh, the big uh, slowdown coming from the consumer. So how big is the question, right, especially considering how much the consumer um, contributes to U.S. economy growth? Is it going to be big enough to bring us into a recession? Well, <laughs> right now we're thinking more of a growth recession in terms of like just slower growth and starting to bring the unemployment rate a little bit higher. Um, not an outright recession that we are all accustomed to, to hearing about. Or Does to everyone see. in your group expect just that, Jennifer? Yes, that is a, that is a, a, a very widespread view within our, within our group. Um, I will continue to lean on the fact that as of right now, the labor market continues to be super strong, but that cannot last forever. And I've, I think I've mentioned this at least over the last uh, few months that, you know, anyone who has several different job offers out there, you know, I hope that they're taking one of them now because it's not going to be available forever. I mean, you can, I'm imagining companies who perhaps have been looking for, I don't know, I'm going to say like, you know, a dozen people to hire. And if they haven't been able to fill those jobs, maybe at this point they're thinking, maybe we don't need them. You know, and if demand is starting to taper off, maybe we won't 
be needing all those, you know, we don't, we'll be needing to hire all 12 people. So you, you have to imagine that it's going to start tapering off at some point. So Jennifer, just going back to last Friday with that CPI print, which was such a surprise, I think, to the marketplace, and, and we saw it in the trading uh, in the markets Friday, Monday, and Tuesday. Um, a little bit of hindsight here. What's your kind of main takeaway from that? I feel that every country around the world continues to perhaps misread the inflation data or kind of sort of expect some expect inflation to start tapering off. But again, it hasn't happened just yet, and this is why you're seeing all these central banks, you know, doing stepping up to do more, you know, except of course for the Bank of Japan. But um, you know, again, because we always. It's just, it's just continuing to surprise on the high side, and I think it's going to continue doing so until it doesn't. By the way, I was thinking today, I was putting together a list of the things I could fund shorting JGBs. I mean, what, a, what a cakewalk, right? What are JGBs? Uh, Japanese government bonds. I'm just okay, gonna, I'm just you. gonna borrow Japanese ten-year bonds, uh, <laughs> sell them short, and then, like, instead of a mortgage or instead of corporate financing or instead of selling treasuries, the U.S. government could fund operations shorting JGBs. It's a, there's no loss, there's no downside to this trade, Jennifer. <laughs> and Governor Karuda continues to say that you know that their economy is a lot different, and that it is not the time to raise rates. There you go. All right, Jennifer Lee, always appreciate getting a few minutes of your time on this Fed Day as we wait the Fed uh, statement at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. I am back here stuck in New York City um, with my friend Katie Greifeld. How with, you doing? With whom I anchor every Monday the ETF IQ show on Bloomberg Television at Sometimes 1. Sometimes on Mondays, Wednesdays. Sometimes on Wednesdays. Uh, we're waiting for a, a decision from upper, upper, upper management on that. But... Uh, she also focuses bigly on cryptocurrencies, and it has been a world of hurt, Katie <laughs> Greifeld. What with, uh, what was it called, Terra, mm. um, Luna, and then, um, what was it, Celsius, mm -hmm. and now Three Arrows. Oh my gosh, What's so many going names. On? I, from what I can tell, talking to um, investors, to traders, this is just looking like a beautiful liquidation cascade that uh, obviously with Terra blowing up, we knew that a lot of people, a lot of high profile backers were involved in Terra and you've sort of seen the slow drip out of that. Slow is a relative term. Everything happens faster in crypto. And now it seems like uh, this is really happening uh, with a much greater intensity. A lot of leverage is getting flushed out right now. And there's a lot of questions about a lot of those names you just mentioned, such as Three Arrows and some of the other big hedge funds in the space. All right, talk to us about Coinbase, because that, you know, I, a lot of folks were leaving the financial services industry and saying, oh, this platform, this mm. is the future. Um, Speaking of Cascade. Yes, and then, boy, a lot of folks lost their jobs and so on. So what do we know about these trading platforms uh, you know, everybody just focuses on the Bitcoin and the price of Bitcoin because you can see it on your Bloomberg terminal. But how about some of these exchanges, the kind of the, the plumbing? It's a great point that it's not just the price of Bitcoin. You have an entire industry built around it as well. And if you think about Coinbase, uh, obviously the news from this week was that they're going to lay off 18% of their workforce. This, of course, I mean, they've hired aggressively just this year alone, adding, I think, 1,200 people. This isn't entirely just a crypto problem. I mean, we've heard about a lot of crypto layoffs. But if you think about what's happening in the broader economy, we're seeing it with a bunch of other companies as well. I mean, if you think about what we heard about Amazon and uh, Walmart, they overstaffed 
too. Uh, it's just that this is hitting at a very painful time for crypto. And you are seeing, again, some of the biggest names out there, Coinbase, having to announce these massive layoffs. We heard from BlockFi this week as well, laying off 20% of their workforce. Interestingly, though, Kraken, just today, another exchange came out and said that they're uh, launching a global hiring push. So some of these firms are trying right. to swim against the current here. Yeah, actually, I got to talk to Nick Carter yesterday mm. from Castle Island Ventures. I was very excited about that. Love He's, him. Great says, mustache. Yes, his mustache is awesome. And he says, uh, plus he also is one of the smartest um, voices on crypto. He was the one of the first um, financial analysts uh, on crypto on the street. And um, he says, look, if you're if you're good smart engineer with good experience which a lot of those people from coinbase are it's going to be no problem for yeah. you to find another job yeah. um, in crypto or in tech in a, in a broader sense um, but there is an issue it seems with staked ether yes. like this first <laughs> became apparent um when when we saw that uh lido one platform was holding 31 percent of all staked ether it's a custodian right for others and and now um we've heard that the difficulty bomb has been delayed this was a way to kind of speed up the merger from proof of work ether to proof of stake ether now three arrows has been liquidating its staked ether for regular ether what what's going on with this with the merge as they call it the switch to a more environmentally friendly way of mining crypto it's a great question we've been waiting on the merge for a while the latest we know is it's supposed to take place later this year and like you said i mean this ties back into the three hours capital conversation one of the most prolific crypto hedge funds out there they have a lot of exposure to staked Ether. And they now, had $10 billion incredible. in assets under management. That's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. Uh, they were one of the investors in Terra. We know that they have exposures to staked Ether, all of the things that are kind of going wrong right now. So with staked Ether, so it's supposed to be redeemable for one Ether after the merge takes place but we don't know when exactly that's gonna happen. And what's happening now is you're seeing this big dislocation between the price of staked Ether and Ether itself. And that is really painful for funds such as Three Arrows Capital. By the way, we're seeing uh, on Bloomberg Television, I see Michael Sunshine from Grayscale Capital is talking to Guy and Alex and uh, Three <laughs> Arrows reportedly had a f more than 5% stake in the Grayscale mm -hmm. uh, ETF, right? Yes, not an ETF. No, sorry, sorry, the Grayscale so Fund. Yes. yes. So they, uh, this is data is as of December 2020 uh, that they had that 5% stake in uh, Grayscale's Bitcoin Trust. Unclear whether they still do. Unclear whether they're selling that right now in the secondary market. But I mean, if you think about uh, hedge funds, they would sell their most liquid things first. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I would imagine GBTC shares are a little bit more liquid than staked ether, but it's hard to know at this point as we, again, just see leverage get wiped out across the industry. And, you know, with that, Katie, a lot of folks are saying, I told you so. Even Bill Gates kind of jumped onto that bandwagon here. Who are the true believers? Where are they? Who are they in crypto? Because uh, it was obviously it is still a very big story yeah, mm -hmm. it, it was never bill gates <laughs> yes you can start with that he was and never jamie a dimon. believer yeah. jamie dimon warren buffett um especially really old people yeah yeah <laughs> not not true believers well i mean it's funny if you think about people if you just think about what's different between now this moment and the 2017 2018 burst it just feels like traditional wall street has 
too many arms into crypto to completely withdraw. So we'll see if that's uh, a, a layer that's involved with this crash. But it's funny to talk about Sonnenschein. So he uh, is at Grayscale. He's the CEO there. I was talking to him right before uh, his BTV interview. He's a true believer. He's still. a true believer. He made the point that you see periods like this, you get a lot of leverage flushed out and basically it weeds out the players who were maybe playing it a little too uh fast with the leverage too cute too cute uh <laughs> it tends to be a healthy period but that's what you would expect to hear from some of those true believers michael sonnenschein absolutely ranks them but the bottom line um even though we're seeing a lot of unwinding of leverage this isn't going away i mean even though we've seen a crash in the price it's not like you sound Bitcoin like a man who anchors a weekly crypto show no, also <laughs> because i i just heard david rubenstein say that yesterday mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you think about our world, and again, I'm a journalist, I have no opinions, our increasingly digital world, kind of makes sense that digital money would be a part of it. Yeah. That our lives would move increasingly online. I mean, I think yep. about the trajectory of my own life. All right, Katie Greifeld, thank you so much uh, for joining us. As always, talking about the crypto, all things crypto. She's our cross-asset reporter, Bloomberg Quick Take co-anchor. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. We are in Dallas, Texas. We bring in Matthew Forster, CIO and Managing Director of BNY Mellon Lockwood Advisors. Matt, it's a Fed day today. I'd love, you know, this is kind of all we've been talking about here on sure. Bloomberg Radio and Television. What are you guys uh, at BNY Mellon thinking about your Federal Reserve? Well, some of you that might be sci-fi fans might like to have read um, Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And if you remember, that book comes with two bright, bold words on the back that says, don't panic, right? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think if you look at what has occurred around the world today with central banks, there's just a little tinge of panic. Uh, we have Ben Bernanke with an op-ed, uh, you know, talking about uh, Fed credibility and that this isn't the 70s. Uh, we have the ECB with this unusual communique, which talks about how they're going to be flexible around anti-fragmentation, yep. uh, these kinds of unusual terms and a, a little vague wording that I think doesn't maybe help. Uh, and we also, of course, have the Fed decision today where you know, there's some discussion about how far they could go and whether or not a move with just a couple days ago, we were thinking that 50 basis points was baked into the yep. cake. Um, and here we have 75 and possibly even 100. And it looks like the market has completely shifted to having 75 basis today points today and usually the Fed does not disappoint the markets when they've already built into that pricing. Right. So I would have said 50 a few days ago and now <laughs> yes. I think it's maybe likely that they go 75. Exactly. And that's kind of what I would think consensus might be. Hey, Matt, as we look around here, I see a lot of your, you know, other, the firms you do, your partners, I'm looking at Janice Henderson, I'm looking at, you know, Eaton Vance and all these folks and they're here, which is good because it's been a couple of years. What are you hearing from your partners, the folks that you at BNY Mellon do business with? 
because, boy, it's been a crazy two and a half years. It and sure has. And, and uh, yeah, the important point for us to, to remember is that we work with all of these yep. large firms here. We're, they're suppliers to us on uh, a third-party asset manager. We manage some of our own. Uh, and so we work with all of them, and we hear from them around products. So yesterday we did a little survey about how their product mix might be changing in the result of what's happened uh, you know, so far year to date. And what we see is that uh, our main partners are much more concerned about the current capital market environment yeah. than they were just a couple of months ago. So you know, a few months ago, at the end of last year, of course, markets were roiling, um, and all of these other pieces, uh, uh, you know, for all kinds of more esoteric products, maybe nichier products, were highlighting what they wanted to think about. You know, direct indexing, ESG, all kinds of other things. Now, you know, they're back to focusing on the basics and protecting their clients against you no know, really challenging capital markets that we've seen so far this year. Yeah, I like so at BNY Mellon. Talk to us about your business. I mean, again, the two and a half years of this crazy market we've been going through. Now we've got this inflation, like we've never really seen we're going to have what they're saying is a couple more months of bad prints on the inflation front how does that affect your business how does that affect your clients well uh we're we've come through this fairly well uh and um that's because we've had some hedges in place whether that's direct equity hedges or hedges uh, to say around a strong dollar with regards to our international currency uh, exposure from uh, international equities. This may not be everywhere. Remember, we have we manage many different, sure. hundreds of different portfolios for various clients. Some of those are custom builds. Some of those are partners with the firms that you see here today. So uh, we provide a large group of, of investments around to our platforms. And, um, you know, all of those are, they're doing different things here. So hopefully we can find something and investors can find a way to find something that they feel comfortable with in this uh, particular market environment. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, anywhere you look this year, equities down 20% plus, uh, you know, the corporate bond index, the Bloomberg corporate bond index, total return down 12, 13%. There's really been no place to hide other than maybe, you know, commodities, you know, maybe you, you had a barrel of oil in your apartment. Yeah, or commodities and energy have been yep. the place to uh, hide out. And even then, you've seen a lot of volatility, but clearly they're, they're continuing to be up. And I still think there's plenty of opportunities there to continue to add to some of your positions because it doesn't look like any of these uh, trends that we've seen, uh, resolution in, in Ukraine, other things are going to happen soon enough to affect some of those market prices. Uh, you know, we'll have to see how uh, Fed tightening continues to affect those prices. I think it's likely that it will in yep. time. But, you know, for the moment, we've got these big supply imbalances, uh, you know, around agriculture commodities yes, yep. or, or, uh, or energy and traditional commodity basket. So I think there's still opportunities there, but uh, there are still places to hedge, you know, the, with the Fed tightening so much, uh, again, you know, head, people don't, a lot of American advisors don't think about this so much, but there's FX effects, yeah. you know, anything you own, all commodities are priced in dollars. So, yep. you know, while the dollar is rising, you're getting kind of a, a double kicker there, yep. but your international FX exposure is not hedged in many cases. So those are the kind of things that I think you might want to think about to try to take the sting out of the uh, equity price declines that we've seen. All right, Matthew, thanks for coming with us. I mean, again, it looks like you guys are having a great conference, great turnout. Yeah. Uh, we're glad to be a part of it. Uh, if for nothing else, it's just good to see, you know, folks that uh, getting back together again face-to-face. -face. I've seen people, you know, huddled in corners, you know, talking, and that's yeah. kind of what it's all about. Yeah, we haven't seen some of these colleagues I haven't met before because they're relatively <laughs> new hires, and it's, like, just great to, to actually get a chance to meet them. So we're all back in person and live here and yep. a lot of networking going on. All right, it's good stuff. Uh, Matthew Forrester, CIO and Managing Director, BNY Mellon Lockwood Advisors here joining us here at this conference, uh, here at the Gaylord uh, Texan Resort. Uh, great 
facility here, huge, uh, and it's doing a good job taking care of all the folks here. Looking at the markets here, we still got some uh, green on the screen ahead of that Fed uh, meeting. 2 p.m. Wall Street time is when we will get the statement, and then, of course, 2.30 or so uh, Wall Street time p.m., we will get uh, the conference with uh, Fed Chairman Powell. He'll face some questions. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.